Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. In the first 12 months of doing this show, we weren't sure what sort of format you as clinical psychologists would want from a podcast, but we've been delighted at the positive feedback you've given us. We'd like to offer you more shows, more guests, and more variety in the future. And to help with that, Nina Cook and Matt Cartwright have signed up to help present episodes. Both Nina and Matt are on the National Committee of the College of Clinical Psychologists, and I'm very glad to have them both involved. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Nina. So, hey, Nina, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist. I uh, run a private practice along with three of my close friends and colleagues in the inner northwest of Adelaide, and we have some other wonderful clinical psychologists working with us there. I studied at Flinders University for my undergrad and I did my postgrad at Melbourne Uni. I did a Doctor of Clinical Psychology with a child specialisation. Since graduating, I worked in some youth mental health services in Victoria and then moved back to Adelaide and worked in CAMS. But now I work with people across the age range in private practice and I really enjoy that. That sounds great. Do you have more of an interest still in clinical and in child work and the family work? Not particularly. Um, I enjoy working with adults in private practice more because I think it lends itself to that work better than it lends itself to um, child and family work. I think hopefully some changes to the Medicare schedule will mean that family work is, um, you can do it better in private practice. That's my hope. Sounds good. I'd be interested to know why anybody would want to get involved in doing a podcast. (laughs) Putting yourself out there can be pretty scary for lots of people. So why did you put your hand up? Well, to be honest, I didn't realise when I put my hand up that I would be presenting podcasts. Um, Uh But I do like a challenge and I really enjoy podcasts. I think they're an important part of how I've been keeping up my skills and passion in the last few years. Um, And I when I realised this was an opportunity for me to do some interviews, I thought that's a great way for me to find out more about some clinical psychologists who I respect and to get to know them a little bit. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's a great way to ask the questions you want answered from the people that you admire most. Great way to get that information. Excellent. Okay, so Nina, now you've got someone lined up for us to meet, actually two people. Can you tell us about today's show? Okay, we today I am very lucky to be speaking with Professor Gillian Straker and Dr Jackie Winship. So Professor Straker is a highly experienced clinical professor in the School of Psychology at Sydney University. She's published widely in the area of psychotherapy and psychology. She has a private therapy and supervision practice in Sydney. Jackie has more than 20 years of experience as a clinical psychologist, psychotherapist and supervisor and she works with Uh, individuals, adults, adolescents, couples, and she's based in Sydney as well. Together, they wrote a book that I really enjoyed and got a lot out of, The Talking Cure. They published it together in 2019. In The Talking Cure, Jill and Jackie present nine cases, and these are cases that they have amalgamated from their real-life clients. They're not real people, but they read uh, so real. They seem like such deep accounts of people's personalities and struggles and they seem very familiar um, to my my own struggles you know I saw a lot of myself in the clients as well 
And what I really loved about this book is that Jill and Jackie are so honest about their experience of being therapists and being in the room and show us how we can use the information of what we're feeling when we're in the room to help our clients understand themselves better. And it's a tricky zone for me. That kind of works really tricky. And I really Mm. enjoyed reading an honest account of how to do that and do it well. Mm. That sounds really great. Sounds very authentic. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a terrific, a terrific topic, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing from these ladies. So, over to you. Welcome, Jill and Jackie. Thanks so much for joining us on Clinically Thinking. I first read the Talking Cure as the paper version of the book. And um, I've recently been listening to it as the audio version, and I understand that both of you take turns reading a chapter each. Um, But certainly when I was reading the paper book, I really felt like I was reading uh, an account of one person's, you know, it's quite nuanced, quite personal, one person's account of being a therapist. Um, And it made me reflect on how close you two must be and what a deep understanding you must have of each other to have provided this really seamless account of your shared experience and it just made me wonder how you two first connected. Well you probably could hear that both Jill and I are from South Africa um, and Interestingly, we we actually never met in South Africa, but Jill had quite a high profile there and I certainly knew who she was. And so I was delighted when I moved to Australia and we met up in a work context um, probably back in 2002. Um, And from that time, we developed a close relationship as both colleagues and friends that has grown over the years. Um, And certainly writing the book together you know, relied on that relationship and also deepened it. But how the book started is that I was at Sydney Uni giving some lectures there to the clinical psychs and they kept saying to me, but what does the therapy look like? What does it look like? And I thought, well, that's a good question. What does it look like and what is it? And so in the lunch break, I started writing up some thoughts about what it was. And then I sent it out to various friends of mine who were all very helpful and came back with different ideas. But Jackie, being Jackie, didn't come back with an idea. She actually said, this is what I think would help. And she (laughs) inserted material, uh, a lot of it um, kind of user-friendly material and trying to help us both to be grounded. And that's how we started. And that's how we finished. So I would usually write a first draft of the chapter, then Jackie would add to it and send it back to me, then I'd add to it and send it back to her. And by the end, honestly, I can promise you, I genuinely can say that we wouldn't know who had put that bit in and who had put the other bit. And I I, I think that we were fortunate in that we worked together to try and get a good product rather than to see who was right and who was wrong. And that was enormously satisfying and we had a lot of fun doing it together we went away for Mm -hmm. writing retreats and enjoyed ourselves with uh, little rewards at the end of the afternoon with a glass of wine and good food so we had fun yeah it really really comes through I think the client 
amalgams are so real. They're so real. They just, I mean, really when I'm reading it, I am identifying with the clients as much as anything and really feeling, oh, that sounds like me yeah. or, yeah, that sounds like somebody else I know. It, it really, I think all that hard work and um, reflection together really pays off in the book. I was just going to say, you know, you're really reflecting what our wish was, which is that everyone would recognise themselves in the book, that it's about the kinds of things that we all struggle with, rather than the idea that, you know, there's one group of people who kind of have psychological struggles and another group that don't. It's, um, you know, it's about the kind of everyday madness uh, that we all encounter in ourselves. And just to say, to add to that, Nina, that, you know, in putting together the amalgams, we didn't only draw on many, many patients. We draw on our friends, our families, and I have to acknowledge ourselves. So it's not surprising that perhaps people can recognize dynamics. And as Jackie said, we were hoping for that, to break down that categorization of us and them. Yeah. And was it relational psychoanalytic psychotherapy that you were lecturing on at Sydney Uni at the time? Was that the therapy that the students wanted to know what does it look like? Not specifically. I think that what the, the, the sort of students really wanted to think about was unconscious processes around, you know, what really happens outside of consciousness because CBT by and large focuses on the human being as rational, yes, distorted thinking, but some thought that it's subconscious, those distorted cognitions and that you can get to them, as opposed to things being even further out of consciousness that one's maybe enacting in one's body language or communicating through other modalities. And so it was really trying to introduce the idea of different kinds of unconscious processes and relational is one of the psychodynamic approaches, but it wasn't specifically on relational, but relational became the easiest one to make legible, if I can put it that way. And I also think that relational is quite integrative because it integrates um, object relations theory, which is a particular way of thinking about the internalization of working models. So very similar, I think, to attachment theory and schema therapy, but it also looks at irrational aspects which arise in us because of our own impulses, our own sexual aggressive impulses, and relational integrates that and also looks at what's happening in the room. So it became perhaps the most legible way that we could put out there what it was that we were trying to say about the unconscious. Okay. So, Jackie, you've also trained then in the relational psychoanalytic approach. Is that your predominant approach? That's my predominant approach now. Um, my training uh, was, you know, a sort of broad training in psychodynamic psychotherapy. Um, I think... You know, when I trained back in the 90s in South Africa, we did probably two days on CBT, a sort of two-day workshop. And the bulk of our training was in, you know, in the sort of psychodynamic schools. At that stage, relational wasn't actually a term that I was familiar with. It was really only later that I came to encounter the sort of relational model or relational approach. 
um, and I've increasingly moved in that direction over the years. Mm. But Jackie and my experiences might be different because when I trained in South Africa, which was before Jackie, um, behavior therapy, not even CBT, behavior therapy with Terry Wilson, Arnold Lazarus, uh, and those people was very much in the ascendant. So my original training was in fact in CBT, and I only later um, moved first into psychodynamic thinking and that broader range that I talked about in teaching at Sydney Uni. And then when I came to Australia, moved more toward relational. But I think that because South Africa was such a particular kind of place and it was very hard not to see people as irrational because it's a completely irrational system, the whole apartheid system. I think that I became particularly interested in us as human beings and our irrationality. Um, and that led me more down toward the psychodynamic way of thinking. But my training was very, very much CBT in the beginning. Um, mine certainly was. I think in I finished in 2006 and my training was predominantly CBT. What I would say, Nina, is that um, it's not, the relational approach doesn't exclude CBT. It's, as Jill said a little earlier, an integrative approach. Mm. Uh, so the focus won't specifically be a CBT approach, but certainly, you know, many of the very useful strategies from CBT might be integrated into that approach at different times, you know, as appropriate. So what do you feel... Uh, would be lacking in your therapy if you didn't have that additional understanding of the unconscious when you're working with people in the room? Well, that's an interesting question, Nina. Um, as I understand it, you're saying, what do you think is lacking if you don't have a concept of the unconscious in the room? Well, I think I would say this, that I certainly think CBT and the third wave therapies, which you referred to when you were speaking or communicating with us earlier, are very important and crucial. But what I found with the students and what I found in my own practice is that there are some people who have gone through CBT, have had many courses in CBT, and DBT as well, and acceptance and commitment therapy, and yet they still actually revolve back through the door into the consulting room. And those are the people where I think that they are perhaps in what I would call, and their presenting problem is that they're against their symptom, but underneath that, they're actually pro their symptom. And it's to really understand what self-interested goals that are outside of consciousness. So it's not just secondary gain, which of course CBT does look at, but it's more what are the kind of outside of consciousness factors that are maintaining the symptom and making it in the self-interest of the person to maintain it. So uh, I, I, I think that what you would perhaps be lacking is an opportunity to restructure something at an internal personality, intrapsychic construction level, as opposed to a behavioral symptom level. 
both are important and they're intertwined, but the focus is, I think, different when you're trying to look at those kinds of mm. out-of-consciousness processes. Which is why in our book we didn't really look at diagnosis. We didn't talk about, well, you know, somebody's got a diagnosis of major depression and that's what the focus of treatment is. We really focused on the dynamics that underlie, you know, the kind of things that might emerge as symptoms. Um, you know, the person's underlying pattern of being in the world, their way of seeing themselves, relating to themselves, relating to others, the unconscious wishes, desires, um, memories, feelings that are there. How do those emerge perhaps in symptoms that we might see that might then constellate a diagnosis, but it's a bit of a different focus. You're not looking at the symptom itself necessarily. You're looking at the sort of bedrock um, that might be helping to produce that symptom. I'm not sure if we've answered your question, Nina. If we haven't, you know, ask it again from a different angle. <laughs> but if we have, that's fine. I think that there's two elements. I think one is our capacity to see the unconscious components of our client's distress. And then I think there's what having a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic approach allows you as a therapist to understand of your own reactions in the room um, and how to use those to help the clients. Because uh, I feel like something like schema therapy can be quite good at picking up at some of the, you know, the bedrock issues uh, when you're mapping out somebody's responses, but it still doesn't um, prepare you quite so well to use your own, I'm going to, if I use the right terms here, your own counter-transference to help yeah, clients. And that's what I really enjoyed about the Talking Cure. That's what I enjoy about listening to Three Associating as well, the podcast, is that uh, demonstration of how you might pick up on something you are feeling, reflect on it, and then share it in some way with the client to help move them along because that's certainly something I was not trained in um, and still find quite challenging. Well, I think you've, you've read something interesting in terms of how one then works with it in the room because I think that's what you're pointing to because, yes, I do think that schema therapy very much will look at the working models, as I said, which is really unconscious. I think it doesn't go to what I would call the dynamic unconscious, which is the disruptive effect of sex and aggression, which all of us have to manage. And attachment is one thing, sex and aggression are another. And so I think that there's an added factor of the dynamic unconscious to what one might call the procedural unconscious or uh, working models of attachment theory, which are very much focused on in a very, very good way in schema therapy. But I think that we're still in schema therapy focusing on the attachment pattern in the patient, whereas in the relational psychoanalytic frame, and I'll go now to relational, but it's all the others as well, you're very much looking at the manifestation of that in the room. And the piece of data, because, you know, we always talk about evidence-based, well, the evidence is in the room. The evidence is in how the patient is relating to you. But a factor in how they're relating to you, which you've pointed out, is yourself. And so it's around the co-construction of the relationship. 
and what is added is the focus on the self to understand what it is in you that might also be eliciting a particular response in the patient. Of course, you're not going to be there analyzing yourself, but you're also not going to be factoring yourself out of the equation as if you were an irrelevant variable, to use the language. You factor yourself in as a very important variable in what it is that you're observing. So I, I think it was helpful that you directed our attention to what we might actually be doing in the room and looking at in the room, including ourselves. I think, you know, certainly schema therapy um, uses the relationship in terms of what we might consider sort of the corrective emotional experience, but that's still very much focusing on the relationship being about the patient. It's not about what's happening between the two of you in a lived way necessarily in the room and what data or information um, that is generating for you. So in other words, the unit of analysis is not only the intrapsychic organization of the patient. The unit of analysis is the relational dynamic unfolding in the room, which involves the subjectivity of both the patient and the therapist. Although, of course, in your intervention, the focus is going to be on the patient. But in your thinking about it, you wouldn't be bracketing yourself out of the equation, and you'd also be trying to go meta to the relationship uh, and to observe the relationship in the intersubjective space. And I think that's where it perhaps differs from some of the other third wave therapies. Mm -hmm. I think that when you're starting out, there's so much, whatever model you're using, there's so much to keep in your mind when you're first meeting with clients, um, and it's all quite deliberate. Um, I think keeping an eye on yourself as well and how you're feeling and noticing those small changes, uh, it's really complex. I um, I wonder what would be the, f if you had a supervisee who had not been trained thoroughly in um, a relational approach, what would be your first piece of advice to them? What would be the first thing you'd suggest that they try to do to start to shift more into this space where they're using the intersubjective space as a therapeutic tool? I think the first thing I'd say is to affirm that home is where you start from. So I really think that if you've had a good training in CBT or a good training in schema therapy, I don't believe you can actually train in relational psychoanalytic psychotherapy as your first port of call. I think you have to have integrated fully an approach that you're comfortable with. So you're not doing all the things that you were saying, Nina, all those things that when you start out, you have to keep in your mind. So it's good to have a thorough training in CBT or dialectical behavior therapy or whatever it is, the training. But then if you're saying, what would you do after that? I think that to go, and Jackie will add to this, I'm sure. I think the first thing is to try and actually say, try to just step back from what's happening and observe it. Just try and go meta to the process and just let your mind think about what is happening. And then as you get more skilled at that, one of the things about observing yourself is a mantra that 
Eki and I have perhaps developed together, which is around saying to yourself, what is it that I'm not saying to this patient that I think would be helpful to be saying, but I'm not saying? And why am I not saying it? What is stopping me from saying it? And would it actually be helpful to say it? And if so, how should I say it in a way that the patient could process and take in? So I think that. But Jax, you add to it because you've got quite a lot to say on this one. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the first things, and it's something I quite often say to supervisees, is we need to be giving our patients something more than what they could read on a book or a website. Because otherwise, you know, if it's just data or a strategy or, you know, actually we can find those in many different places. So what is it that we're doing in the room that makes this a special or transformational process beyond, you know, it's not to say don't use those strategies, but we have to be adding something. Otherwise, you know, refer them to a book. Um, Our, hours, preferably. Hours, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but as Jill said, really, then I would be encouraging them to pay attention to process, to pay attention to what's going on in the room, what's happening in you and what's happening in the patient. And what is that perhaps telling you about what might be troublesome for the patient? Um and I think with that, I would also be encouraging them to begin to get a little braver about authentic self-disclosure in the room. And I don't mean by that that you're going to, you know, sort of talk about what you had for breakfast or the fight you had with your husband last night. It's really self-disclosure about what you're noticing in you. So, for example, when you say that to me, you know, I notice myself feeling a little puzzled or confused um, about, you know, why you feel that I'm attacking you at this particular moment. Because in me, it felt as if I was trying to say something empathic, but it doesn't feel like it's landed that way for you. And I found myself feeling a little bit anxious that, you know, if I say something more along these lines, you might interpret it as hostile. And so can we think together about what it is in the way that I'm saying it and in the way that you're receiving it um, that's constructing this particular dynamic. So it's kind of sharing what your observations are. I think one of the things about the relational approach that I really like is that it's a very transparent approach. All the time you're revealing to the patient the method, you're revealing to them what your thoughts are. You're not sitting there as the expert who holds all the cards. It's actually a shared endeavor. Um, and so I think I would be encouraging that kind of thinking, at least, um, in somebody who is new to this approach. So, so I wanted to understand what you thought were the most fundamental skills or characteristics for managing process, process issues well in the room. So if we're doing authentic self-disclosure, uh, pausing and reflecting and bringing these in-the-moment issues to light, what do you think that requires of us? Well, I, I would say that what we've already stressed, which is observational skills, 
I really do believe that people who want to work in this approach should go for their own individual psychotherapy because I think that you then have the experience of being the patient because we expect the patients to disclose lots of information that might be very threatening or they may feel very vulnerable. So to have a lived experience of what it feels to be a patient and to have somebody lend you their mind and their thinking and their emotional support and their containment and deepen your own understanding of yourself, I think would be really important. Um, I do think supervision, because as you know, and Nini have mentioned the podcast, I think that as therapists, we continue to have blind spots and um, areas where we're not aware. So I think ongoing supervision is really important. But in terms of characteristics and observational ability and tact, tact and discretion, the kind of thing that in normal human interchange, um, you know, truth can be very painful. So it's not about just uh, ripping off the Band-Aid and uh, saying to the person how they come across or what you see as the difficulties. And I think also a certain ability to tolerate the fact you might be wrong. So what I observe, I need to check out that you may agree with me or may not agree with me. And then if you don't agree with me, it becomes curious as to why we might experience things differently. So I think an ability to tolerate uh, different perspectives and not to be right, but to be more curious about what is, why is there this difference? That's what I'd say. Mm. Jax, but what would you think? Yeah, well, I was actually thinking, Jill, it might be useful for you to give an example from one of the stories in, in the podcast, um, you know, especially when it comes to how do you handle a situation where perhaps you fundamentally disagree with something mm. that a client mm. is saying or bringing to the room, you know, how we would use or interact mm. with that from a relational perspective. Well, I, I, I will give an example, and then I'm going to hand back to you because I know that you currently, as are we all, uh, dealing with contemporary issues where we might have disagreements more specifically around the vaccine program and this and that. But I'll just give that difficult one to you and do the easy one myself, which is in the podcast, which was uh, one particular podcast with the supervisee, Rachel, who is a real person. And if she's listening, I'm sure she'll be fine with it. Um, she is working with a patient, a fictitious patient, so we always protect people. We don't have real patients, so it's also an amalgam. But this fictitious patient uh, is very shamed and embarrassed and humiliated because in a staff meeting, somebody said something about the Black Lives Matter, and she said, oh, but all lives matter. And there was this stunned silence because, of course, all lives matter, but she'd missed the kind of political moment. And then Rachel found herself in a quandary because she didn't want to amplify the patient's sense of shame, but equally she didn't want to paper over the fact that it, she had misread the room and that misreading the room can get you into a lot of trouble. So how we kind of worked with it and what I think if I were to abstract the principle 
is that we can go on site with the patient around how they feel, shamed or awful or terrible, but we don't necessarily have to go on site with the content. And if you go on site with the feeling, you're more likely to be able to help the patient see that there might be a different perspective on the content. And Rach was sort of feeling in a, a bit of a, that she had two choices, either to soothe and collude or to confront. And the point is, no, there's a third option, which is to be on site with the feelings, but maybe to help the person think about an alternative perspective on the content. So that would be the abstraction. But as easier said than done when you're in the hurly-burly of it, and I'll let Jax jump in on the vaccine one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jill and I were reflecting earlier that, you know, the vaccine is obviously a very um, polarizing issue for some people. Uh, you know, you're either pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. There's sort of these two camps. Um, and there's been quite a lot of discussion recently about, you know, what is our role as therapists when this issue comes up in the room? And, you know, should we engage with it or not? And do we have a responsibility to um, sort of provide particular evidence? Um, and it seems to me that the important thing is the sort of relational thing that happens when you disagree about something. Um, and certainly, you know, it is something that's coming up in the room. And I am happy to own the fact that I'm pro-vaccine and have been vaccinated. Um, but not all of the people that I work with feel the same way. And when that comes up as an issue, what, you know, do we do with it relationally? rather than getting into a binary around who's right, who's wrong. You know, is it an opportunity to be able to both own your perspective um, and yet also allow there to be difference and to explore what it means with the patient if you and I think differently about an issue? What does it bring up in the patient? What, does, what happens between the two of us um, when we find ourselves perhaps holding different values? Mm -hmm. Um, and also, can I remain connected to how the patient feels about it, what their anxieties are, without having to sacrifice my position um, mm -hmm. at the same time? And so I think it's a real challenge, but it's an interesting relational um, kind of uh, moment, I guess. And very telling. So that's a great example, because relationally, then, I'm less tuned into the content of whether the person agrees or disagrees with the vaccine, although the content is, of course, there and in the room and will be stimulating certain responses in you as the therapist. But really, for me, the issue is much more, how does the person navigate it? Are they looking to me that they want me to agree with them, disturbed if I'm not? Are they trying to bully me to actually agree with them? Are they withdrawing if we actually have a difference? How is this being navigated? Because I think how you do relationship in the room is quite reflective of how you would do relationship outside of the room. So in relational, the unit of analysis is the unfolding relationship. And how that is navigated is then what we're dealing with. Because if the person's bullying inside the room, that's what's getting them into trouble outside if they 
sort of pretend to capitulate but don't really capitulate, or if they really do capitulate and give up their own position, that's also got its own issues and challenges. So it, mm -hmm. it's less about the content and more about how it works itself out. Which how isn't it's navigated between the two of you. Yeah. And to manage that requires that capacity to observe the changes in the client, the changes in ourselves, to take that meta point of view and see the process mm -hmm. unfolding in the room, which when it's something, I mean, we're in Adelaide, so perhaps slightly less emotional um, a debate mm -hmm. as it must be in New South Wales right now. Um, but certainly there's going to be emotion coming up in both of you around a polarising issue like that. and. Um, mm -hmm remembering to step back and, and watch the process and use it as an opportunity to understand the client's relational patterns is certainly um, a helpful way to work through what could otherwise be a really sticky kind of feeling in a therapy session. Well, again, sorry, sorry Anina, because what you said about, you know, transference, counter-transference um, is real because the patient raising a polarizing issue with you, which of course is totally legitimate, but there's a question of what is the purpose of raising this issue with you? Is it a fantasy that you're actually on the same page? Is it a knowledge that you're not and trying to be provocative? It's always around what does this actually mean? And that's what I think is the kind of material of the relational approach and this is where perhaps that idea of the unconscious comes in because I may not be conscious that I really want to provoke you or that I'm actually wanting to have a fight with you because last week you were five minutes late for my session and now I feel cheated so you know it's it, it's that's what we're meaning too by unconscious process because that came up earlier in our discussion hmm. So in The Talking Cure, you speak to letting your mind wander to imagery when you're feeling stuck in trying to connect to a client. Can you give an example of that? Um, I think Jackson, I agreed I would take this one, oh, so okay. I will. That's in the actual book, this particular example about um, a person that, or a dynamic really, of a person who really was incredibly distressed and hurt about a relationship breakup but couldn't really come to being upset. They were angry and blaming and, um, and understandably so. One could certainly understand it. But it just felt as though something was left out of the room. And looking at the person, it was clear that they were really, really very, very distressed. But trying to go near the vulnerability amplified it and it really didn't seem to be helpful. And the person was actually an artist as well in our fantasy of this person. And kind of just letting your mind float freely. You're processing, thinking about what they're saying, thinking about are they relating to you. But your mind can also wonder a bit. And in that wondering, the image of Edward Munch, the scream, the painting, the scream came up. And that became then a, a link to the patient saying, I'm not sure why, but this painting came up in my mind of the scream. And it does seem as though it would be quite appropriate to scream in this situation. And 
the person was then able to link and say, yes, it's my favorite painting, and for the therapist to say, and there's such incredible agony expressed in it, and when I sit with you, I feel that underneath all the anger, there's a tremendous agony and distress, and by mediating it through the painting, rather than, you know, I can see you distressed, which is like putting, you know, a spotlight on the person and they might think I'm a rabbit in the headlights. Having that image um, could mediate something and allow the movement from, well, as we say, behind every mad person, as in angry, but behind every mad person's a sad person and vice versa. So it's, that's what we mean by the kind of reverie. So, Jax, I don't know if you want to add. Yeah, well, I guess I just would say that it's sort of almost giving yourself permission to let your mind free float into that space um, mm. and allowing yourself to actually draw on your own intuition and your own creativity um, and having the courage, again, to take that seriously, that if something is coming to mind, it may or may not be useful, but it is sometimes worth putting it out there. Um, and it can become, you know, a really important symbol that allows a different sort of entree into what it is the client is struggling with. Mm. And I think two things. Jack says, you know, look, you can give yourself permission, and I agree. And the other is to say, I'm not sure, because it's true, I'm not sure why this is coming up in me. So you give the person the opportunity to say, well, I don't know why it's coming up in you either. It seems totally irrelevant to me, <laughs> which is fair enough. Okay, well, then I'm curious and I'll think about it. Or they say, yes, actually, that's really interesting. But we don't assume just because it's a product of our mind that it, it's uh, the kernel to, you know, the truth of the person's uh, process. Mm. Yeah. I've been reflecting a lot in the lead up to this interview where I sit personally with sharing of myself in the room and how far will I let myself go and what do I shy away from and in supervising some um, wonderful clinical psychologists and coming at these kind of issues as well it's it strikes me that I'm I'm relatively comfortable with saying something like I'm not sure why or I don't really know or um, just checking this out or I'm having this strange picture of this come up. Um, but a lot of people aren't. A lot of people feel really confronted by that level of transparency and they feel like they need to know it all or have it all together. And you mentioned courage to, to share with clients what's going on inside of you when you're... Um, when you're having something that is based on intuition and it might not be exactly right, do you think we just learn that, or do do we need to do we need to go through? I know you've mentioned going through therapy, something where we're really confronting our own stuff, uh, so that we can feel more comfortable sharing of ourselves in that way. I think that certainly helps because, of course, when you, we share of ourselves in that way, we make ourselves vulnerable. You know, we're revealing something of ourselves and we're also putting something out there that might be wrong. But the person says, that's ridiculous. That doesn't resonate with me at all, you know. But that gets us closer to actually figuring out 
the picture together. Mm. You know, we sometimes have to be wrong in order to know what's right or, um, you know, what might be a better fit. Um, I think it also is something that, you know, you get better at with practice um, mm. and experience. And certainly I think, you know, for myself as I've grown in confidence as a therapist over the years, it's become easier for me um, to be more, you know, in touch with, my lack of expertise actually in the room and to be able mm -hmm. to own that because most of the time, you know, our patients are experts on themselves. They know much more about themselves than we do. Um, mm -hmm. And we need to engage with them from that perspective rather than from the perspective that we know everything and, and they're the sort of mm -hmm. vessel there to receive our knowledge. Um, so mm -hmm. there's that that I would think. Um, no, I, I, I think just to add to that, I think it is a question of experience, actually, Nina. And that's why I said I don't think one should go to relational psychoanalytic work before you're grounded and confident in something else. Because actually, it's a sign of confidence to be able to say, well, actually, I'm not sure. Because you're not then feeling insecure that you have to have all the knowledge or you have to have all the expertise, otherwise the patient isn't going to feel that you're giving them anything. So I, I think it's definitely your own therapy and your own self-knowledge. I also think it's experience as a therapist. And as I say, I would come to relational later when you yourself feel more confident. Because I, I always say to supervisees, Never do what's uncomfortable to you. If it feels uncomfortable to disclose what's going on in your mind that you're not sure or you're this or you're that, don't because it's going to go wrong. You have to be authentic and you have to stay within your own limit. Otherwise, it's not going to go in a good direction. You might with your supervisor think about why you are uncomfortable, but don't push against it until you've understood it. It's also, we perhaps sometimes are under the illusion that if that we don't disclose ourselves um, to our clients, whereas actually, I think it's impossible not to, you know, for example, if we go back to what we were talking about with the vaccine earlier, yes, I could not say that I hold a different opinion to a particular client on that. But inevitably, I probably would signal it in some way in the room, you know, it's very difficult for us to be blank screens because we're not and we unconsciously and through our body language, our reactions, um, our level of genuine empathy, we are transmitting something. Um, and so, you know, it's sometimes better to be able to sort of own that than to try and screen it out. I think I'd add something to that. I mean, I agree with Jackie. We can't not self-disclose, but there's as perhaps deliberate and less deliberate. So if somebody comes into my room, A, the area that I practice in is going to say something about where my rooms are located before people even walk in the door. The way that it's furnished, the way that I dress, whether I'm wearing a wedding ring or I'm not wearing a wedding ring, all of that is going to actually tell the patient. So, But that's inadvertent. Then just adding to what Jackie said, I think if it's something that you feel strongly about, it is probable that you're going to broadcast it, perhaps like the vaccine. 
but for me uh, and thinking about how I might have had to navigate this issue, unless the person asks me my permission, sort of my position, I will not just automatically disclose it because I listen to what they're saying and also their fantasy of whether I am actually pro or against, and I won't necessarily contradict it. If it's wrong, I'd rather be interested in why are they raising this and what is this actually meaning. But if they ask me, and it's an issue like this, I won't refuse to actually disclose. And if the person picks up something in me, like I think, you know, you seem a bit distracted, and I actually think I am distracted for whatever reason, I think you gaslight the person if you say, oh, no, I'm not, or why do you think that? I might just say, um, yes, I was a bit distracted in that moment. I actually heard the, the gate open, and I wondered who it was, and I'm sorry about it, but, you know, let's go on, because, or how did it affect you? Because if the person gets to know that when they ask me, I'll tell them the truth, then when I they say to me, are you angry? And I say, no, because I'm not. They're more likely to believe, no, I'm not. And therefore, why do they think I am? And it becomes a much more useful way of thinking about, well, perhaps you are projecting that onto me because when you ask me, am I actually distracted and I am, I say yes. Mm. So it's more for me. That's, I think, the issue of self-disclosure. And as Jack said, it's not about one's personal life. It's about what you're thinking connected to what's happening in the intersubjective space. So to summarize there a little bit, we need experience, we need grounding in a therapeutic modality that we can feel confident in before we can start to then also bring our attention to the relationship and to think, to step back and observe and to uh, think how to bring in a reflection on what's happening in the room and to an extent to be able to be so transparent as to say, well, I'm not really sure uh, mm. or I'm feeling a bit vague right now because behind that mm. is our our confidence in our skill that we've already imparted to the client. We're, we're not offering nothing but uncertainty. We're able mm. to share our uncertainty um, on the foundation of knowing what we're doing generally in our therapeutic approach. Well, I love the way you put it, Nina, that, yes, we're not just offering uncertainty, but we can express uncertainty because we have some certainty that we're offering something. Mm. And I, I think that that's, that's a nice sort of summary that you put in there. The only thing I would also say is that you can start thinking this way long before you start enacting it in the room. It's the actual working in the room that you need all of these things in place to start thinking about it and talking about it to your supervisor or to your peer supervisory group you know uh, yeah that you could do fairly soon I think again I really like the book for that reason that it gets you thinking about it you know and I've, I've read it and now I've listened to it a few times and it just keeps it in my mind um, to be observing and, and to be reflecting. So I see myself, as I've said before, in all of the clients in the Talking Cure, but I tried to narrow down to one that I'm most like, and I think it's Troy, 
who presents with a pattern of subjugating his own needs and then repressing rage. Um, can we break down, I know it's generalising, but can we break down what I might need to be most alert for as a therapist in my interactions with my clients? So just to clarify, Nina, you're asking what you might need to be aware of because of that dynamic in you rather than working with people who might have that dynamic. Absolutely. What are likely to be my blind spots or traps that I might fall into? So you might, for example, find yourself colluding um, with clients around things rather than challenging them. Um, you might find yourself agreeing to give them an appointment time that really doesn't suit you um, because it's their need to have that, but actually it means you're going to be, you know, late for dinner or whatever it might be. Um, and in that, also noticing in yourself that you're feeling irritated and annoyed. You say, yes, that's fine. Of course, I'll see you at 7.30 tonight. But actually, you know, there's an underbelly of, of rage there on having to do that. So it's being alert to that, I guess, in you. And then being alert to what's happening between you and the client. What it, What is it, you know, does that dynamic in you become particularly active with certain clients? And what does that tell you about perhaps their way of being in the room? You know, for example, if you have a client who also tends to subjugate their own needs, do the two of you get into a lot of, you know, kind of looking after caretaking each other in a particular way? And, you know, what does that mean? Or if you've got a client who is perhaps much more, you know, on the uh, narcissistic end of the spectrum and, you know, they're not tuned into your need at all and very tuned into their own, what does that perhaps bring out in the dynamic between the two of you in the room? So it would be looking at an awareness of what's happening in you, but then looking at also what that constructs with the client. I guess also perhaps I could say that, you know, if that is a dynamic for you, or and all of us have our own particular kinds of dynamics that we know we bring to relationships and we bring them with us into the therapy room, you know, that um, it would be also trying to challenge ourselves perhaps to go a little counterintuitively, um, to be more prepared to hold a position and not go to a position of subjugation. Um, but certainly to factor in how that pattern is playing out when we go to a meta level around the process in the room. Just before we finish up, would you like to tell our listeners where they can find the book or the podcast if they'd like to learn more? Yes, uh, the book, The Talking Cure, um, is available um, in certain bookstores and Amazon in hard copy or otherwise online um, as an audio book um, or an e-book on Kindle. Um, and um, the podcast is called Three Associating, the three written out in full, and the website is threeassociating.com. So we'd invite anyone who's interested to explore those options. Well, Jill and Jackie, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you coming along to Clinically Thinking and sharing your wisdom with us. 
Thank you so much for having us, Nina. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, and it's been a thought-provoking and stimulating discussion. Yes, and I, I echo that, Nina. And Jackie and I were saying before we came online with you that uh, we really loved your questions and found that they challenged us in a really good way. So thanks for that. You're welcome. Thank you. You can find Clinically Thinking on all the popular podcast platforms. If you've enjoyed the show by Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it if you take a moment to leave a favourable review. Reviews help other people find the show and tell new listeners what to expect. You can find more information about our guests or chat about the program at the Clinically Thinking Facebook page. I'm Dr Lisa Chandler. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.